found an interesting article in the newspaper some time back. And the title is, Science and the Bible Agree, It's Better to Give Than to Receive. And the little subheadline is, Happiness is Linked to How Money is Spent, Not to Wealth. Uh, Byline Washington, D.C. The Bible counsels that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Science agrees. People who made gifts to others or to charities reported that they were happier than folks who didn't share, according to a report in today's issue of the journal Science. While previous studies have shown that having more money can increase happiness, the researchers at the University of British Columbia right up here in our neck of the woods, and at Harvard University, wondered whether the way people spent their money made any difference. Turns out it does. Lead researcher Elizabeth Dunn, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, said she wasn't surprised that doing something for others made people happy. But she was struck by how big the effect was, and that how people spent their money was more important than how much money they had. This work suggests, quote, that even making small alterations in how we spend money on a daily basis can make a difference in happiness. And uh, so there's, a, there's another little block that's blocked out here that says confirmation. In other words, a separate study published in 2006 in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, found that the same parts of the brain that produce the good feeling when a person receives a reward also respond when they give to someone. Indeed, researchers led by Jordan Grafman at the National Institute of Health found the reward areas were more active when giving a gift than when receiving one. So I want to give you a chance to feel good. Ushers, would you bring the offering bags out again, please? What's the matter? I'm just all about you. Yes, I'm going to talk about your money today. Which really, of course, isn't yours. It's God's money. Last week, we began talking about the subject of consecration. Not a word that we use a lot, but a word that means to dedicate yourself to God, to be consecrated, putting ourselves in God's hands, giving ourselves to God to do his work in the world. And a big part of true consecration is what we do with our money. Look at Matthew chapter 6, please, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and mammon or money. The use of money demonstrates the consecration of our heart. Now, I hope you understand that what Jesus was saying was a principle that goes beyond the idea of giving. He's stating a full life principle. He's saying where your money is, that shows where your heart is. It's a thermometer, if you will. It's a signpost. It's not just if you give to the Lord's work, that shows that your heart is here. But what he's saying is, whatever you designate your money to, that shows where your heart is. And he talks about consecration in that last verse that we read. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Now, what God says is there's two focal points when it comes to money. Either we're focused on this life with our money, or we are focused on the next life. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's two choices, two focal points, two ways we can think, two affections of our heart. Either it's all about right now and what I'm doing, or it's about up there and what I am doing with God. Now, there's something, some things that I need to say also. God doesn't say we should give all of our money to him or to, say, the church, which represents him, and then live in poverty. He doesn't extol the virtue of poverty anywhere in the scripture. He extols the virtue of generosity. He extols the virtue of not trusting money, but he never extols the virtue of poverty. But neither does he preach or teach the idea that the wealthy are more spiritual than the unwealthy. Both of those ideas are man-made. They are are man-serving. Because those people who like to take the vow of poverty and, and say, look at everything I've given up, and then those people who say, look at all that I have, surely God is blessing me, those are man-centered virtues, not God-centered. God does not extol the virtues of being poor. He neither does he condemn the poor. God says we should enjoy the things that he gives us. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. So as God gives us things, we should enjoy them. If God gives us a nice house to live in, God, God gave us $75,000 a year ago to rehab this room into the way it looks right now. Um, and we're actually saving money with some of that because we have insulated windows. We spent some of our own money on heating, so we're saving some money. We have greater comfort. God gave us that. You know, some people would say, you should not have spent any money. Nobody here said that. Somebody would say, you should not have spent any money on yourself. You should have spent it all on some foreign mission work. That's a debate. But God doesn't condemn us from enjoying the things that he does allow us to have. God does say that the investment of our money indicates the consecration of our heart. You see, the Christian life is a whole life proposition. You can't segment it. You can't say, well, this is, my, this is the God part of my life. And this is my part of my life. This is what happens... Sometimes with people who, who love the concept of 10% tithing. 
to say, I gave 10% to God. I can do what I want with the other 90%. And that is not a biblical doctrine either. God says the Christian life is a whole life proposition. We can't dedicate part of our life to God and keep back part. You cannot give God your Sundays and keep the other six days for yourself. You can't give God your time but keep your money. And ultimately, that is the problem when we try to segment. And people will segment their life with all kinds of things. This is God's part. This is my part. Or, or maybe, you know, I'm going to be the opposite. I'm going to give God 90%, but 10% of it belongs to me, and I will do what I want with it. What God says here in Matthew 6 is this. We should use our money in such a way as to make deposits in the bank of heaven rather than just living it up down here. For instance, you could own a house which is dedicated to God's service. You try to raise your children in a godly way, try to teach them his truth, give them his values. You use it for ministry when there's a need to house a guest missionary or a speaker or or to have a dinner for a Sunday school class or to have a backyard thing for the for the kids. You, you use your house you know, in any way you can. You put it at God's disposal. Or you can have a possession that you don't share because someone might mess it up or you might have to do some work or you might have to clean it up or whatever. You say, this is my house. Rather than saying, this is God's house. God doesn't condemn home ownership just as an example, but he asks us to own and maintain and use our homes in ways that are useful to him. And the same thing could be said about a vehicle or a business or whatever it is you might own. Many years ago, uh, when we didn't have that much stuff, in fact, I don't even know if the kids were born yet, we were moving from one place to another. Well, while we five and a half years at Nooksack, I think we lived in, let me think, one, two, three, four places in five and a half years. As we moved from a room about half that size in the church all the way up to a little two-bedroom house, or a, excuse me, the chalet, we got up to the chalet eventually. Well, one of those times I was, we were moving and I needed a truck. And we were poor and we couldn't just go down to the U-Haul and rent a truck, so I looked around the church and thought, well, here's a guy with a pickup truck. So I went to the guy and I said, hey, bud, can I borrow your pickup truck? I need to move to this new place. And he looked at me dead serious. And he said, I don't even let my wife put groceries in the back of that pickup truck. <laughs> and he didn't snicker, and he didn't loan me the pickup truck. Okay. I, remember, I still remember thinking, what in the world? It's a pickup truck, you know. In contrast to that, somebody here, last week I called them up and said, hey, I, can I borrow your truck? Anytime, just come and get it. Tried to insist that I not uh, put gas back in the thing. Okay? Either you have an attitude of, hey, it's God's, it's at your disposal, or it's mine, and I have a particular way in which I want to control it and use it. And that applies to everything we have. And frankly, some things are harder to deal with that way than others. Way back in the day before CDs were created, I had a lot of vinyl records. And we had a kid in our youth group at the, in the early days of contemporary Christian music. This, this kid came and said, can I borrow some of your records? 
oh man, if you don't remember vinyl records, they were easy to mess up. And I thought, I do not want to loan this guy my records. They're mine. You'll mess them up. That was the internal discussion. The external one was, okay. (laughs) Hey, it's a battle. I'm not saying I've conquered this. What I'm saying is, a consecrated wallet or a consecrated house or a consecrated car or a consecrated whatever it is you buy with your money or whatever you own only can come from a consecrated heart. Jesus said the way you use your money and your stuff shows where your heart is. We had some friends who came to visit and they left us with 20 Kohl's bucks. You go to Kohl's, you get a little bonus, you know, for shopping there. They give you 20 bucks. It expired yesterday. So my wife says, I just can't stand to lose those 20 bucks if we go to the store. And she's drawn right to the kids' clothes, kids' clothes, kids' clothes. She's not thinking about herself. She wants to give that to the grandkids, you know. I won't tell you what I was thinking about. But but one, yeah. But you'll see it some Sunday later in the summer when I wear it to church. <laughs> I didn't really care about it that much either. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Where's your heart at? And it's a challenge. You know, like, I, I mean that. I know it's a challenge. But the thing that I want you to get a hold of today, and I do want to talk particularly about money today, and I do want you to know if, if, if you're new in our church, You can ask somebody else, when's the last time I preached about money? It's been a while. In fact, the last time I preached specifically something similar to this was years ago. We're we're fine financially. We've already made the budget for the month, and we have another offering today. So we're we're not after your money because we're hurting or because we're going to do some other big project. What I'm talking about is for you. This is about your dedication to the Lord and your Blessing and care from the Lord. Jesus said, what you do with your money points to what's going on in your heart. And so because of that, we need to take this seriously. The giving of money demonstrates a heart for God's work. I want to look at some categories of giving that we see in the New Testament. Because this goes to to speak to where our heart is, is at as well. What are some categories of giving? Well, the first category, the most obvious one, is worldwide outreach. And we read about it in Matthew 28, which is not just about the world, but it's also about here. But let's just think about the, the, the world out there for a minute. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." When we ask the question, why should we give to worldwide missions, it's because God didn't say, reach all the people you can all the way around the world without ever getting up out of your recliner or without spending any money on travel. God didn't say, now now find a nice comfy seat and then reach the world. No, he he just said, reach the world. Figure it out. Find a way. Now, when we think about ministry, uh, you know, there's, there's expensive ways and there's cheap ways. Let's look at an example of this in the, in, uh, in the New Testament. 
the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving except you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. The Apostle Paul was supported uh, in part by churches. Now, he also supplemented his income. When he needed to, when there was an opportunity, he was literally a tent maker. We use the term tent maker missionaries these days to mean somebody who goes to another country and has a job, but then they also do the Lord's work. Well, the Apostle Paul literally made tents. That was a profession that he had. And so there were times when he supported himself, but there were times when other people supported him. Doing ministry is both free and expensive. I don't know if you've ever thought this through. It costs nothing for a believer to speak God's gospel to anyone they meet as they go about their daily lives. In that sense, doing ministry is absolutely free. Now, it might be personally expensive, but in terms of dollars, it doesn't cost anything. And so, uh, you know, uh, Glenn and Kathy went to Europe for two weeks. Did you start a church while you were there? What's the matter? Are you slacking off? I know they talked to at least some of their tour mates about the Lord because he said this person, he told me about some of the people he met. But you see, if, if you have cause to travel internationally, you can do God's work without spending a dollar because your company is paying for it or, or it's your vacation or whatever. You know what I'm saying. So ministry can be free. But giving a Bible costs something. Going to a place down the road or around the world costs some travel expenses. Creating programs and ministries and materials to open doors to the gospel requires money. If you're going to spend 30 years translating the Bible and then printing it so it can be given to some folks in Africa, that's going to cost livelihoods of multiple people. There are many countries that do not want God's gospel at all, but they want American medicine. How expensive is it to send a doctor to open the doors of ministry in a foreign land? Well, that's wicked expensive. I've found out about a new ministry that I'm really excited about. It's a ministry, I think, done by, started by a doctor. And you know what he does? If a nurse or a doctor goes full-time to the mission field and they have a school bill, he pays their school bill while they're there, month by month. As long as they stay on the mission field or doing furlough work, when they come home, he pays their bill. How, ex- how expensive is that? That's really expensive. I have a friend who has access to a mission field I cannot access, and so I support him financially. In fact, he has access to a place that hardly anybody has access to except the people who work there. And he has access all the way to the highest echelons of this. And I can support him, so I get to go there through him. That's what giving to foreign ministry, giving to other ministries is about. God wants to take his gospel around the world, and it costs money. Second category of giving in the New Testament is local church ministry. In Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? He uses an illustration from the Old Testament. 
And if you've never really read the law well enough to understand, when people brought a sacrifice, it wasn't all burnt up like the whole animal. They would take, say, the fat of that animal and offer it as a sacrifice, and the rest of it would be divvied up. And actually, the people who brought it got to have some of it back to eat, and the priest got some of it to eat. Okay? And so he says, look, the people in the temple, they, they lived off of the ministry that, that was in the temple. And those who served at the altar partake of the, the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, this is the hardest thing for a preacher to talk about, but that's me. I'm living off the gospel. And I'm well aware that there are many people who, who are using people in their living off the gospel, and they're driving expensive cars, and they're living in expensive houses, and so on. That's not going on here. But what God says here and elsewhere is it's perfectly acceptable if that is the case. Now, it doesn't have to be the case. There are places where churches, when I was in Boardman, Oregon, I was a missionary pastor, and some of my money came from other places to help support that church. Some of it came from my own labor, and, and that's okay. But God says, is the local church ministry worth our investment? Is what we are doing, both with us and in this community, worth giving to? Again, I would say that local church ministry is both free and expensive. It doesn't cost anything for you to tell your friends about the Lord. But I cannot spend hours studying and hours visiting and counseling and so on unless somebody buys my groceries. And we cannot have a presence on the Internet unless we pay the bill. Andrew, where are you? Sorry there. What's the last count on how many sermons have been downloaded? Okay, so 3,000 times people have listened, and I don't say that many arrogance to me, but I'm saying if we don't have a presence on the Internet, which costs us about 50 bucks a month, uh, or 50 or 60 bucks a month, nobody can listen to that. Nobody can read our doctrinal statement. Nobody can see the connections we put to missionaries. Nobody can find out about us without 60 bucks a month, you see? So ministry is both free and it is expensive. We could meet in a city park and pay no rent. We could sell our building and go meet in the city park. You could come together down there at uh, whatever that park is down there. We could all stand up for an hour and a half. Not, nobody's making a motion there, are they? <laughs> if, you, if you're not familiar, the churches in Russia before the fall of the Iron Curtain used to do just that, only they didn't go to the city park. They went out in the woods where nobody would see them and they had a church service in the snow in the woods to try to avoid being arrested for it. That doesn't cost anything in terms of dollars. But in our society, people are not going to come into a building that's run down and cold and uncomfortable to sit on the chairs. And so ministry is expensive. There's a third category of giving in the New Testament, and that is the support of needy Christians. Uh, a, a category, we, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16 for an example of this. 1 Corinthians 16. Several of the offerings talked about in the New Testament had to do with just this thing, supporting needy Christians. 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Paul's going to give them specific instructions about giving. The target of this offering was for needy Christians. There were people in that day suffering for the Lord. They would lose a job or they'd be thrown in jail or whatever. And unlike today, you don't get three squares or two squares a day in jail and a cot to sleep on. You're in that day, like some places in the world, your family had to bring you food while you were in jail. And so there were needy Christians. You could also read about offerings like this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You could read about it in Acts chapter 2 through 6 where they, they, said every, they held everything in, in a sort of a common pool, and when somebody had need, they gave them money, and you can read about some of those things going on in the early church. In the times of the apostles, persecution was the primary cause of Christian poverty. In our country today, persecution is not the primary cause of Christian poverty. There are Christians who struggle financially. And we have a benevolent fund when we have... Uh, the Lord's Supper every month, we take an extra offering, there are plates set out, and we collect that money up, and when we know somebody has a need, we write them a check. And, uh, you know, if it's, and many of our, over the years I've been here, folks, you know, all of a sudden some calamity comes upon them, we help them out, and then pretty soon they're doing fine again. Once in a great while, we'll stand up here and, and say, you know, so-and-so's got a special need. And uh, we need to take an offering for them. Last time we did this, you gave $1,700, I believe, somebody that needed to have had a medical need. That's what we ought to do. Okay? Because of the conditions of our country, because of our social welfare system, we don't have, I, I hate to say it, but we almost don't have a primary responsibility for people. Now, we do have a responsibility from God, but there are so many things in place. But we should take it seriously. When there are Christians in need, we should do what we can to help them um, we did that by sending some money to, to Haiti. And uh, after the service last week, somebody came up and handed me a check for 100 bucks, and I want to send this to that ministry in Haiti that we heard about. That's great. There's a drought in Africa, a recession in America, a lack of education in many countries. Whatever it is, we ought to do what we can. This verse here is an interesting one that I think ought to stick in our mind. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And you can check the context on this. It's the context of, of serving the Lord and of doing good. That's the context where he says, in due time we will reap if we don't faint. And, and then he says, so let us do good to all, especially to the household of faith. When we hear of a need, we ought to see what we can do to meet it. Now here's the point of me talking about these three categories of giving. Foreign ministry, local ministry, supporting needy Christians. And let me come back to my theme verse. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so let me be really blunt, as if I'm usually subtle. Do you care about worldwide ministry? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm asking you to just look in your heart and say, does my wallet, does my checkbook demonstrate that I care about worldwide ministry? Now, part of what you give every week here goes into worldwide ministry. If you don't know that, 
We've combined our missions fund and our general fund in one this year, and that's not so we can give less to missions. That's so we can give more and not have to worry about telling you write two checks every week. So part of what you give every week goes to foreign missions. So I guess the question would be, do you care about foreign ministry enough to put something in the offering? Do you care about ministry right here on the west side of Whatcom County enough to give? Do you care about Christians in need? And, and the point is, if your heart is really in these things, if you really believe these things are important, then your wallet will be there also. And I, I, think, it, I think it correlates to a principle like this from James 2. In, in James 2, he's talking about salvation, and he's talking about demonstrating your salvation by your life. He, said, he says, if you, if you say you have faith but you don't have works, you're fooling yourself. And here's the concluding principle. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If you love the things that the Lord has told us to love, there ought to be a giving toward those things. Now, as we continue in these thoughts and also in 1 Corinthians 16... This is the the point that I want to make here. The rules of giving guide the consecrated believer. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. And even though this was particularly about an offering for needy saints, there are principles here that ought to guide all of our giving. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders. When the Apostle Paul gave an order, it was God's order. There are times when he says, this is my opinion, only a handful of them. But in this one, it's not. This one, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so I give them to you also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. So when I ask this question, who should give, I believe the answer is every Christian. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, if you don't know that. Monday is not the first day of the week. The Sabbath or Saturday used to be the end of the week for them, and so Sunday was the first day. On the first day, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collections when I come. The Apostle Paul said, as you're having your church services week by week by week, I want you to set aside the offerings, so when I come, there won't be the taking of an offering. In part, he wanted to do that because he didn't want to look like he was taking money from them. And in part, he knew that they needed to set it aside a little at a time if it was going to amount to something significant for the people in Jerusalem. So he says, each one of you, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. It's like sharing the gospel or encouraging our brothers and sisters In the Christian faith, God commands all Christians to give. When should you give? I believe the answer here is regularly. Now, is it a mandate from God that you put something in the offering every single week? I think we have to envision the life that they lived. The Corinthian people being city folk. Okay, not primarily farmers, although some of them could have been farmers. If they were, how would they have made money off their farm? They would have raised the produce, they would have brought it to town, they would have sold it in the market, and they would have had money in response to that. And they would have done that week by week by week during the harvesting season. 
Other peoples would have been merchants. Corinth was a crossroads of uh, trade. In that part of the world, there would have been a lot of merchants there. They would have been making money week by week by week by week. That would have been the normal way they made money. Now, they didn't have banks, per se. They didn't have checking accounts. And so he says, every week, when you come to church, bring your offering and put it in. Collect it up. When I come, I'll get the whole thing and I'll take it to Jerusalem. I think the principle here is regular giving. Regular giving. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase. When we talk about a consecrated heart, one of the words that has to come to bear is the word priority. Priority. Uh, Tomorrow is my day off, and uh, I already have two or three things written on a list uh, of stuff. I have to go to the hardware store, got to go a couple other places, and that list will grow until I'm ready to go out the door. But I have... Two priorities on my day off that I, re- I have three that I religiously observe. And one of them I observe every day, and that priority is spending time in the Word and in prayer. And years ago, the way I learned to make sure I did that every day was from another man who I went to a seminar. I think, it was a, I think I was at a youth retreat, and this guy said, Here's my rule that helps me remember to read the Bible no Bible, no breakfast. And I went, that would help me. (laughs) You know, sometimes righteousness rests on good rules. So, no Bible, no breakfast. So, when I started doing that, hey, first thing, my first priority is right there. And I know that. I have that decision made. It is my first priority. And so, I sit and I read and I pray. That's what I do. On my day off, I will go out after that, and I will work out. Over here, the Everyday Fitness, uh, that is my number two priority on my day off. And my number three priority is to have breakfast at McDonald's or read the paper and talk to Al if he's there. And from there, there are other things. But you know which one always gets done? On a list of priorities, number one gets done. You have a list of priorities. You have a list of priorities for your money. You might have put it on paper or you might not have put it on paper. But the question I want to ask is, is giving to God's work a priority? And not a priority. (laughs) When it comes to your money, could I say, is it the number one priority? Now hang on till I get to the end of this sermon when I tell you how much you're supposed to give. Because I don't think you're supposed to kill yourself and not eat. But the question, look at the principle. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits. And it goes on to say, so you will be blessed. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The idea of regular giving, regular giving. In other words, the the real question I want to ask you today is, as you look forward, uh, here we're on uh, the 29th, the first is coming, you probably have a paycheck coming sometime here. Is it your plan, your plan 
to give? Or do you wait until the paycheck comes and you pay all the bills and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, hello? And you go, oh, shoot. And then you're looking at what's left. And you give something. Okay, better than nothing. The question is, though, is it a priority? Is it a priority? Is your heart so consecrated that you're saying, that's going to be my priority? I'll be frank with you, when I write that check first out of my paycheck, sometimes I think, boy, I I could do, do some other things. Sometimes I think that's going to make it kind of tight. But then I stop and say, look at the house I'm living in. Man, I don't deserve that. And I could tell you the story of how God gave it to us, and he did. And not free, but nearly so. Honor the Lord with your possessions. If, if I was trying to know what a man's priorities are, and I wanted to have a really gross example, I might say something like this. I would speak of a man who is so addicted to some substance that he spends his paycheck without buying groceries for his family, yet claims to love them. Does he love them? No, he loves himself. I knew a man who didn't want to give because it would reduce the amount he could put in savings. Now, most people are not in that shape. Most people are saying it will reduce the amount that I spend on some other thing. But this fellow was very disciplined about saving. And obviously what he loved was security. Big savings account makes you think you're secure. And he loved that. I knew a teenager who was planning to give and planning to serve after he turned 40 and was financially independent because of all the investing he would do in that next 20 years. 30 years ago, he had $5,000 as a result of investing as a teenager. So he was a smart guy and a hard worker, but he said, when I'm 40, I'm going to retire, and then I'm going to serve the Lord. I don't know the end of that story. I guess I should look it up sometime and try to see. If God is on the top of your financial letter, ladder, then the first check you write after you put your paycheck in your bank ought to be to God. If God is your priority, you ought to come in here on Sundays prepared to give. Now here's the question you've all been waiting for me to answer. How much are you supposed to give? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly how much you should give. And it's in 1 Corinthians 16, and it's the word proportionally. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Some of you will call me a heretic, and some of you will rejoice when I say that 10% is not the New Testament rule of giving. But it wasn't the Old Testament rule of giving either. In the Old Testament times, God's people were to give a tenth of all produce, flocks and cattle, which was primarily in the Old Testament to support the Levites or the people who ran the temple worship. Out of this 10%, the Levites gave 10% to support the ministry of the high priest and all of his people. The whole nation was supposed to give a second 10% 
to support the festivals that the nation of Israel had. And every third year, they were to give a third 10% for the poor. And then there was the seventh year when they were not to work the land. They were supposed to let it lay fallow as an honor to God who gave the produce. And then there was the year of Jubilee every 50 years when all the encumbered land was given back to the original owners. Now you do the math on that, and it's a little more than 10%. So if you want to follow the law, you go right ahead. I'll be looking for the increase next week. Okay? Because it's at least 26%. And yet we are blessed more than the people of the Old Testament. But God doesn't say you have to give a percentage. He says you have to give a proportion as God may prosper. We had a widow lady in our church many years ago who was with the Lord now. And there came a time when she had to move out of her apartment into an assisted living. And I don't remember the exact figures, but it went something like this. You know, the assisted living costs 2000 bucks a month or whatever it was. And, and they take all of my... Social Security, and when it's done, I get a hundred bucks. And she said, and she told me this in response to an appeal letter we'd sent out for some project or, or something, whatever it was. And she'd gotten this letter, and she felt bad because she couldn't give. You know what God knows? As you may prosper. Now, maybe if you got a hundred bucks left to live the month, maybe maybe you should put a dollar in the offering. I really do believe you ought to put something in. I've seen the people in Africa walk up front and put their offering in, and they're only making, if they're working hard, two or three bucks a day. And I th- So I think we do need to think seriously about what we give, but we need to think prayerfully and say, God, here's what I have. What should I give? And we should have an open, honest conversation with him about it. And God says, as you've been blessed. This is a guy named R.G. Letourneau. Some of you who are older in the Lord know of him and his reputation. He founded Letourneau University, which is a a big uh, kind of an engineering type of school, Christian school. He invented machinery like the one he's standing by. And he had patents on machinery like that. Big earth moving. I think he might have been the one that invented that thing that scrapes it up and puts it back down later on. I'm not positive. But he invented some and he made tons of money. And he gave away to the Lord's work 90% of what he made. And he kept 10% for himself. Do you know what? I think that's New Testament giving for him. It's proportional. Now, I'm not here to inspect what you give. I know of some churches that do. Some cult churches that will inspect your 1040 form to see if you're tithing. That's not my goal here today at all. Because here's the critical element in giving. The critical element is not law, but faith. But faith. Giving is all about faith. Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please him. Because he who comes to God must believe that he is and must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the question of faith is this. I know God says to give. I know the ministry is important. 
But, oh, it's going to hurt if I give. It's going to hurt if I do righteousness. God says, no, no, hang on, hang on. He says, he says, I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And not only does he say he's a rewarder, but look at this verse. This is, I think, the only time in the Bible when God asks us to test him. Bring all the tithes, bring all the, the giving into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now. Put me to the test in this, says the Lord. See if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing such that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, I'm not here telling you that you're going to get rich when you start giving to the Lord's work. But I am here to say this. God himself says, you can trust me. And that's the real question here. We know what God has said, but the question is, do we trust him? And frankly, that's the reason I'm preaching this message. Because if you have not learned this truth, you are missing out on a piece of the Christian life that is exciting. I... I, there have been times when I believe the Lord wanted me to give some certain extra this or that, and I gave, and, and I just thought, well, I wonder what the Lord's going to do. And I go through my life, and the Lord gives back. And I think, wow, really? And, you know, the old phrase is true, you can't outgive God. If it comes from a consecrated heart. Now, if you're here today and say, well, boy, I want more, so I'm going to give more. You're on your own there. But what God says is, if you will love me, and if you will give to my work, I will pour out a blessing on you. The construction zone signs are up at our house again. We're working on the backyard, and one of the things that I'm looking forward to building is a climbing toy for the grandkids. Anything to get them out of the house. <laughs> Somebody in our family said, don't make swings, we'll have to push them. <laughs> it wasn't me. I've never built one of those from scratch. But I'll do some research, and I'll figure it out, and I'll spend some money, and I'll give some effort because I want the kids to have fun when they come to our house. We already have a toy box that overflows. We have a little bicycle. We have books. We have puzzles. We have lots of snacks. And by the time this summer is over, we'll have an outdoor big toy because it's not hard to spend money on people you love. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. God says, put your treasure in me. Heavenly Father, help us. We are selfish by nature. We do want to give 10% so we can spend the other 90. Help us, Lord. Help us to know the excitement of giving to you, of giving to your work, of investing in what you're doing both here and around the world, of encouraging Christians who need help. And then the excitement of seeing you provide for us. Father,
Help us to be obedient and show us those windows of heaven so that we might trust you more and more. I pray in Christ's name, amen.